Well, it's good to have you here this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We're finally making it to the point where last week we saw the 10th plague and now we're seeing the actual exodus out of Egypt. If you're taking notes, you probably should have some in front of you. Um, The title is Promises Made, Promises Kept. Two nights to remember. Two nights to remember. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to read starting in verse 29 and make my way down to verse 42. And then we're going to talk about context for a little bit. That's important for today's message, especially important for today's message. So we understand really what's going on in this passage. Um, yes, in Exodus, but also in Genesis and, uh, and throughout the revelation of Scripture, even in the, in the New Testament. So I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard, starting in verse 29. Here we go. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat down on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with the kneading bowls bound up in in their clothes and on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they said, excuse me, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and of clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses and Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. A mixed multitude also went, went up with them, along with flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor, could they be, nor had they prepared for any provision for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be observed. For the Lord, for having brought them out of the land of Egypt, this night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. If we read Exodus 12, just as we have all by itself, really for the first time, and if we knew nothing about the Bible, if we knew nothing about God, and we just happened to flip open the Bible and turn to this text and read it, This is all that we would know about God at this point. And we might determine 
that God is cruel, that we, we might even say he's capricious to take out the lives of all these people. But if we read this chapter in its context, it's, its near context and its far context, of course, we would conclude that God is trustworthy. We would say, no, he's just and he's merciful and he's gracious. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. I want to prove my point. Genesis chapter 12. We need to show that our study here has much historical background. Just to think about it, Exodus 12, 31 through 51 is a fulfillment of God's repeated promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Uh, Way back when it was first given in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, the context of Exodus 12 reveals that God's promises to Israel, including promises of those who he would bless and those of whom he would, do you remember? Curse. He made promises to this nation when it was one person. Because God blesses Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We would call this, in the New Testament era, we would call this the Great Commission. He's here to bless not just Israel, but through Israel, all the ethnicities of the world. Genesis 15, 13 through 14, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved. They would be afflicted for 400 years. But God also promised to judge that oppressing nation, the nation that afflicted them, and then he committed to bring his descendants, Abraham's descendants, out with many possessions. It would be a wealthy nation. More history. In Genesis 46, Jacob and his 75 family members arrived in Egypt. That was the beginning of this 400-year time period. In Egypt, God inducted Joseph to be second in command. If you would remember Joseph, he was not an Egyptian. He was an Israelite. And through Joseph, God would bless the nation of Egypt, giving him second in command over that nation. With that, the very gracious king, a.k.a. Pharaoh, gave him free reign of the entire country. The only one he answered to, of course, primarily God himself, but Pharaoh. More history. As we saw in Exodus chapter 1, Joseph and his family died off. That original group of people were no longer there. The land was filled with Israelites, and God proved his trustworthiness, his promises he would fulfill. We also saw in Exodus chapter 1 that another kind of king would rule over Egypt's throne. This new pharaoh in chapter 1, likely, as we found there, a conquering pharaoh, probably not an Egyptian, didn't know Joseph nor Yahweh, used him to save the Egyptians from famine. 
that new Pharaoh convinced his people that Israel's massive population was an existential threat to Egypt's, Egypt's people. So Pharaoh's people, all of them, appointed slave drivers over Egypt to afflict them. They had to make it difficult on this nation that was larger than them. Here's the problem. The more the Egyptians plagued Israel, the greater Israel's population multiplied. Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But God keeps his promises. Promises made, promises kept. Despite Gentile oppression, God kept blessing Israel as a great nation right in front of Pharaoh's face just to nudge him, just to say, I'm in control. Uh, Your people may think you're God. You're not God, and you will see that. Yahweh is unstoppable. As we see in the text, there is no one like him. So the king issued a death sentence against Israel's firstborn sons. This resulted in a complete and opposite outcome. God's power, God's promises skyrocketed Israel's population. Pharaoh and his people persecuted God's sons and daughters even more. And as their afflictions increased, their cries for rescue grew even louder. We know that from Exodus chapter 2.23 and Exodus 3.9. God heard their cries. He said so. God heard their weeping. And because he's trustworthy, guess what? Yahweh sent Moses. He sent Moses to extract his people from the land of Egypt. We get that from Exodus 3.10. And in Exodus 4, verses 22 through 23, God threatened Pharaoh, and the king learned that Israel is Yahweh's firstborn. So God warned him. He gave him a picture mercifully and gracefully to say, here's what the future is going to look like for you and your people unless you act in accordance with what I'm telling you to do. And he said to him, you must release my firstborn to serve me. If you don't, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God made a promise. And in chapter 12, he made good on that promise. God gave Pharaoh many opportunities to save, for Pharaoh to save his firstborn son's life. How so? In keeping with Genesis 12, three promises, God graciously sent nine plagues, and we went through each one of them here. Merciful reminders that if Pharaoh continues to persecute God's people, then we know the answer, right? Then God will kill Prince Pharaoh, Pharaoh's firstborn son. That's not all. Each plague showed that the people, uh, that the people's gods in Egypt were idols. They were fantasies of their own imagination. Remember, we looked at Psalm 96, 5, not too long ago. And it describes their idols, their gods, as nothings and nobodies. Promises made, promises kept. In Exodus 12, 29, the 10th plague 
fulfilled God's promise to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. Look at verse 29 again. And it came about at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeons, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The cries the Egyptians brought on the Israelites in Exodus 1 and 2 became the weeping that God inflicted upon the Egyptians in Exodus 12:30, because there was no home where there was not someone dead. That's pretty stunning. God's jackhammer finally broke through Pharaoh's rock-solid heart, and he hit flesh. Prior to the 10th plague, God was clear with Pharaoh in Exodus 11.8 that this man's servants will indeed bow down to Moses, demanding that they leave Egypt. Promises made and promises kept. So in Exodus 12.31, because God is trustworthy, Pharaoh's servants took a knee and they submitted to God's majesty. In the middle of the night, Pharaoh capitulated to God's demands. Why would it have to come to this? You see, God is not cruel and he is not capricious, but you know what he is? He's trustworthy. He is trustworthy. I guarantee you that whatever life is dishing out for you right now by God's own sovereign plan is not something far worse than what Pharaoh and his entire nation went through. He is trustworthy. He has this. And he has you. Our study today reminds you that there is no one like Yahweh. So with that, you must trust him because he always keeps his promises. Now, I've, I've broken down this text into really two main outline points, and then we'll cover several things within them. So the first one is promises kept. We see that in verses 31 through 42. And then promises made in verses 43 through 51. And since the context of Exodus 12 reveals many of God's promises, in keeping with my assigned text today, let's start with promises kept. Promises kept. As I sat down in my own quiet time, just pondering through this section of scripture, I imagined living in Egypt that unforgettable night in the year 1446 B.C., Thought about the own loved ones in my own family. They came to mind. The names of the dead firstborn sons in my own family. Maybe you can think of your family. I'll give you the names of the ones in mine. My son David Weathers, he would have been gone. My grandsons Benjamin and Caleb would have been gone. My grandfather Charles Weathers II. My dad Charles Weathers III. Can you guess what my brother's name is? Charles Weathers IV. Can you guess what my great-grandnephew's name is? He would have been gone, Charles Weathers the fifth, or sixth, excuse me. My grandnephews, or my nephews, Kyle, would have been gone. Debbie's dad, Bill, would have been gone. Debbie's brother, Donald, would no longer be with us, neither would her nephews, Christopher and Thomas. I have a smaller family than many of you, but you get the idea. Uh, this is a stunning amount of crying and weeping that would be going on. Loved ones 
we're gone. Your loved ones are just as real as those firstborn sons who died that night. And we can understand the urgency that that they reflected in verses 31 and 32. That very night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. The words spewed from his mouth like bullets from an AK-47, dot, 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 dot. Several commands, one after the other, as a rapid firing seven imperatives from verses 31 and 32 hit their target, accelerating more than two million people to vacate Egypt within hours. And you thought it took you a long time to get ready to move somewhere far away. Here's the commands. I'm just gonna shorten them so you hear them. They all end with an exclamation point. Get up, get out, go. Serve Yahweh, take your flocks and your herds, go. Bless me. Unlike the previous plagues, Pharaoh's mandate lacked any further negotiations. Do it the way that you said you wanted to do it, Moses. Just get out. Pharaoh demanded. In fact, he begged them to worship Yahweh just like Moses had requested way back in Exodus 5.3 where it was a three-day journey from Goshen in Egypt to the promised land. You mean we had to go through 10 plagues to get to this point where he would finally demand they leave? People within Pharaoh's own family and in every Egyptian household were mourning their dead. They wanted Israel gone post-haste. They wanted him gone now. They were cursed for resisting God's sovereignty. The same is true for unbelievers today. Like Moses, they will one day bow knees to their creator and obediently submit to Yahweh's lordship over their souls. Verse 32. In verse 32, Pharaoh, like many people today, demand, God bless me. God bless you. God bless America. How about America, comma, bless God? God is trustworthy. Our repentance blesses him, but he will never bless those who refuse repentance. And yet, Pharaoh demands God bless him. In the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother, Jude, proves this point in his letter, Jude, verse 5. He writes these words, Now I want to remind you, Though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Wow. Jude's point, you ask? People who refuse the lordship of Jesus Christ, as we read throughout the pages of Scripture, will be leveled by God's wrath. Today, we're going to see a series of promises made and a a series of promises kept. And verse 33 is a promise kept from not-so-distant text, Exodus 11.8. You see, Moses told Pharaoh and his servants that they will prostrate themselves before Moses, begging them to leave Egypt. They were so desperate to extradite Israel. But why? 
Verse 33 reveals their mindset. It's pretty clear. If we don't send them out now, the idea is, then we'll all be dead. And the Hebrew, if we could read it in Hebrew, let me give you a direct translation, literally, we'll all be dying. In the middle of the night, bodies of dead family members and lifeless animal carcasses were everywhere. They wanted Israel gone. These Egypts, excuse me, the Egyptians thought they were next. They thought they were going to be dead. So Moses' observations suggest repetition. They persistently urged Israel to swiftly get out of their country. You see, Yahweh is trustworthy. Their desperation was predicted. In Exodus 6.1, Exodus 6.1 says that Pharaoh, under compulsion, Looking forward to this time in Exodus 12, from Exodus 6, out of compulsion, he will drive them out from the land. But in Exodus 12, 42, tells us who really deported Israel. You see, it was Yahweh himself who brought them out. Pharaoh was just a tool used in the hand of Yahweh. Verse 34 tells us, they hurriedly, wrapped up their clothes around bowls filled with unleavened bread. And they threw them over their shoulders like a backpack. They didn't know for sure how long they would be gone, perhaps three days. But they know they wouldn't get far without food. And so you can see their desperation. All they had was dough. It wasn't even cooked yet. There weren't grocery stores along the way. And so they had to take their provisions. More promises made and more promises kept Look at verses 35 through 36. I'm going to read it again just for effect. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given them the people, excuse me, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their requests, and they plundered the Egyptians. Hebrew experts tell us that that word requested in verse 35, if you can see it there. The word requested, or maybe in your text it says asked, it can also be understood as demanded. You see, sensing that they have the upper hand for the first time in several hundred years, these Israelite slaves had some demands of their own. Turn back to Genesis 15. I want to point out some of those demands that they would have referenced, perhaps. Because God is trustworthy, way back in Genesis 15, we see why it was easy for them to make such demands. Verses 13 and 14. Again, this is way back Uh, Excuse me, I'm back in Genesis 15. I turned my Bible to Exodus. Way back in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, which we now know to be Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Now watch what happens here. But I will also judge the nation, that's Egypt we now know, whom they will serve. And, watch this, 
afterward, they will come out with many, what? Possessions. That's the promise that God made long before they requested those things. Turn over to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So they would come out of, that, out of that area with possessions that God had promised that they would get, but Genesis 15 doesn't tell us what they would get, but Exodus 3 does. He says this in verse 21. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and your daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. God keeps his promises, even promises that are very, very ancient in the lives of people. So among other things, God gave them and promised them silver, articles of gold and clothing, And these articles would be ultimately repurposed for another thing in the building of the tabernacle during their 40 years of wandering. And well beyond that, I might add, even gold for false worship. You see, Yahweh's trustworthy, but the question is, do you trust Yahweh? We look back now in those times, they say, well, if I had known all these things, I would have trusted him through all this, but do we really trust him even now to deal with some of the things that we're facing? So in verse 36, since Yahweh gave his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians to see, to observe, they gave Israel everything that they asked for. Moses observed that they plundered the Egyptians. Plundered is a military term. You see, God made his people victorious. Moses observed that they plundered the Egyptians. Again, It's the kind of term that was used in a military situation. You see, several years later, Moses writes about what he and everyone else witnessed that day in Egypt. And he writes about it way over in the book of Numbers. Turn with there, uh, turn there with me to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33. I'm going to start off in verses 3 through 4. This is the people looking back to that day that they left, that day that they journeyed in verse three, they journeyed from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the month. That's when they made their way to Sukkoth, about 15 miles perhaps. On the next day after Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians when the Egyptians were burying their firstborn. Let that settle in. Two million people. They're remembering this much later. They're remembering that we walked out in the presence of the Egyptians as they were burying their loved ones. They saw us leaving. Verse four. When the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom Yahweh, whom the Lord, had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgments 
on their gods, on their made-up, their make-believe gods. God pronounced judgment on them through those plagues. Promises made, promises kept. Are you seeing a pattern here? Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to pick it up again at verse 37. God kept his Genesis 3.15 promise. And this is the first day of Israel's exit. And verse 37 is the first leg, what, we could, what could have been a three-day hike, but eventually became, you remember how long, a, a 40-year journey, right? In verse 37, Moses chronicles this path from their first day from Ramesses to Sukkoth. As I said, probably about 15 miles So continuing on with verse 37, Moses gives another important detail about who left. He writes that there were about 600,000 men on foot. Do you see it there? Don't miss that. He didn't say 600,000 men, but he said quite clearly 600,000 men on foot, aside from little ones. There's another military term here. It's used again throughout the Old Testament. Men on foot is a military kind of phraseology. These 600,000 men were fighting age, probably men 20 years and older, who can defend the larger community of about 2 million people on the journey. They would protect all the males, all the females, from birth and through their advanced years. That was their job. Liberal scholars... Oh, the liberal scholars, they despise the idea of this many people. Some drop a zero, maybe two zeros or more from this 600,000, make it a smaller number. Others resort to, I don't know, sort of an ad hominem saying the numbers are fantastic or incredible. There's no way this could be because... By their own conjecture, 430 years wasn't enough time for God to produce so many people. Human wisdom, human speculation can never be a threat, will never be a threat to God's word. Scripture itself speaks for itself. In Exodus 1, we've already seen the rapidity of Israel's growth. You'll recall these words, they became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. That's the reason, do you remember? That's the reason Pharaoh demanded the death of Israel's firstborn son. Let's camp out on that word firstborn just for a moment. In verse 29 in Exodus 12, that word firstborn is mentioned, I believe, four or five times. Here, we're seeing that he took out their firstborn sons. They took out Israel's firstborn sons. That Pharaoh, back then in Exodus 1, is a poster child for people like Margaret Sanger and the post-abortion birth crowd. The skeptics fail to recognize another critically important detail in verse 38. You see, God didn't bring Israel out of Egypt by themselves. He brought some others with him. Do you see it there? He he gave a mixed multitude of Gentiles, foreigners, 
He gave them a front row seat to observe that there was no one like Yahweh. These were non-Israelites. Again, this is the Great Commission. God wants the world to see that he's in control, that he has the power. Well, who were these people? I like the way that the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, rightly calls them a foreign multitude. That's good, it's a mixed multitude. The word can also mean swarm, swarm. Usually referring to a multitude of swarming gnats. Sound familiar? Swarming flies and frogs. Sounding more familiar? And grasshoppers. That rings a bell, doesn't it? Because that tells us about the previous plagues they went through. This foreign multitude was like a a swarming multitude of non-Israelite people that were on the exodus with them. The wording suggests mixed tribes, races, non-Israelites. Well, how many foreigners were among them? Well, we don't know. But we can confidently agree with Moses, there was a multitude of them. That's his observation, along with a large number of livestock. In Numbers 11.4, Moses derisively refers refers to them. Again, Numbers 11.4, he calls them the rabble who were among them who had greedy desires. They were the Ephesian 2.1 kind of people. They were dead and their sins and transgressions, and they needed to be made alive. And so God inserts them with his nation, the nation of Israel, so that they could see just how amazing he is, that there is no one like him. Rabble. In Numbers 11.4, as I said, is a, it's an epithet that describes foul people a combined mishmash of foreign cultures. In a word, they were what we would call Gentiles. They were to be Israel's great commission, the mission field. They were to reach them. In Psalm 96, the psalmist pleads with us to declare God's glory among the nations. And here, Israel has a magnificent opportunity with this mixed multitude, this group of foreign nations this mishmash of rabble that consisted of rebellious Gentiles amongst them. Why? Well, because just as God loves Israel all the way back in the New Testament, John chapter 3, verse 14, he loves Israel, so he loves the world in John 3, 16. You know that one well. A world filled with a mishmash of mixed tribes, of ethnicities, and rebellious people. And so he gave his unique son, Jesus, so that all those who were believing in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Why this mishmash? The Great Commission. That's how they would see Yahweh in action. A world filled with a mishmash of mixed tribes and ethnicities and rebellious people. And as I said, he gave his unique son so that they could believe in him. The Exodus was not only an opportunity for Israel to see that there is no one like Yahweh, but an occasion for the Gentiles to love their creator, to stand back and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe what I'm seeing, something far greater than me is amongst me, or us. Well, moving along. The next point shows us 
how this all works itself out with the Passover celebration, the, the regulations that were required of the people. But for now, turn your eyes to Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. Promises made and promises kept. The sons of Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years to the very day that Yahweh brought them out of the land. And over 1,500 years later, 1,500 years after this exodus, in Exodus 12, we read in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, these words. Paul pens. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this would be the Pharaoh in Exodus 12, for this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you. And in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, God made Pharaoh to advance the Great Commission, to tell the world that there is no one like him. And God purposed Israel to be his ambassador, a blessing to the world, to proclaim his name among other nations, to show the world that he's trustworthy. As it relates to Exodus 12, 42, Israel must steadfastly keep the Passover throughout all future generations. Here's why. So that they will never forget that Yahweh is the one who brought them out of Egypt. He's the one that passed over their firstborn sons. But if they are to remember Yahweh in accord with his plan, then they must abide by his rules, and he makes the rules about how he's gonna be worshiped. And that begins in verse 42 with a mention of this rabble of, of foreigners, this mixed multitude, these tribes, this mishmash of rebellious Gentiles, their, their mission field. You see, Yahweh will reach the world with the gospel. His plan forbids rebellious Gentiles from celebrating the Passover unless they abide by his rules. Well, we're going to get there. But for now, we've seen that Yahweh is trustworthy. He keeps his promises to Israel as he keeps his promises to us. And to help you remember that there is no one like Yahweh, let's focus on more promises. Promises made in verses 43 through 51. As we've seen, the Passover is a night to remember Yahweh for bringing Israel out of Egypt. And in verse 43, Yahweh has a rule, an ordinance, a Passover. Verses 43 through 49 present God's main criteria for celebrating the Passover. Remember who was with them, the foreign multitude, the mixed multitude, the mishmash. And he addresses their requirements for the Passover first. Verse 43, no foreigner shall eat. No foreigner shall eat the Passover a circumcised slave may eat, verse 44. Verse 45, foreign residents and hired laborers shall not eat. Verse 46, the Passover is a family memorial to be eaten in private homes, not outside the house, nor shall the sacrificed animal's bones be broken. Verse 47, the entire congregation of Israel shall celebrate the Passover. Verse 48, 
Only circumcised travelers, sojourners, may celebrate the Passover with you. Treat him like a native amongst you. And in verse 49, the same applies to the native as it does to the sojourners. Just as Jesus set the rules for worshiping God with the woman at the well, way back in John 4, 24, we read these words from Jesus, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So too does God set the rules for worship. We don't have a worship style. We have a worship mandate. We worship God the way he tells us to worship him. So glance back down at Exodus chapter 12, 26. As it relates to the Passover, God anticipated a time when their children would ask, what does this right mean to you? And in verse 27, God tells them what to say. He says, you so say. It is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when they smote the Egyptians, or when he smote the Egyptians. But he spared our homes, and the people bowed low and worshiped. That's what they were to tell their children for generation after generation. So for hundreds of years, parents told their children that the Passover sacrifice celebrated Yahweh's passing over the houses of their relatives when God struck the Egyptians but spared, as he said, our homes. I want to compare this to a New Testament passage. Let's go over to Luke. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. The, the, the New Testament has a parallel memory uh, but a remembrance supremely more important than that of the first Passover. This is where the disciples gathered with Jesus to celebrate this last Passover with him. Starting in verse 13 of Luke 22, and they left and found everything just as, they had, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he, that's Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This is the cup which is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Again, do this in remembrance of him. You see, these men on this night came to celebrate the Passover, this Passover meal, and they came to celebrate it in accordance with the rules that were laid out in our passage today, Exodus 12. On this night in Luke 22, or if you will, Matthew 26, the men would have been gathered together celebrating the Passover as circumcised Israelites from their childhood, their parents assured them that they were acutely aware 
of the purpose of the Passover meal. We've studied the reason in Exodus 12, 26, and 27. These men would have been enamored by the fact that Yahweh passed over the houses of their ancestors in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but he spared their homes. This is what would have been on their minds. They would have been focused. Their minds would have been centered on their relatives 1,450 years earlier, bowed down, worshiping Yahweh. The Passover meal Jesus hosted for his disciples was unlike any other Passover ever celebrated in that period of time between Exodus 12 and their time. The memory of Jesus that he gave to them in this Passover was distinctly different in its requirement than the parents would have been given the generations for these several hundred years. As their minds recited Passover details from Exodus 12, Jesus instituted communion, which was to be done in perpetuity as remembrance of himself, not the Passover out of Egypt. The ultimate Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world, not just the sins of the Jewish people but the sins of the people within the ethnicities of the world, that rabble that was with them all the way until our rabble today. People from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. These are the two nights that we must never forget. Positively speaking, we we must always remember them. The Passover in about 1446 B.C. and the first Lord's Supper in about A.D. 30 is what we remember But the question is, where do we go from here? So many years, so far removed from this event, these two events, where do we go from here? Where we go from here is the Great Commission. We continue to reach the rabble of the world. Promises made, promises kept. God ensures the success of the Great Commission during the church age by gifting his local churches on a global scale. He gifts them with what? With entrusted pastors like our own. Expositors entrusting the word of God to others who will be able to train and to teach still more at the preaching of God's word. We know that from 2 Timothy 2.2 when Paul on his deathbed told Timothy, you go out and train more people to do what you're doing, Timothy. These would be men approved to God as workmen, not needing to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. But why? Well, so that Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 happens, so that the saints in every local church are equipped to do the work of the ministry so that we can reach the rabble, so that we can reach the mishmash of the nations of the world. Brothers and sisters, as you recall the beauty of the Passover in Exodus 12 and communion in the New Testament, remember, there is no one like Yahweh. He sacrificed his firstborn son because he always keeps his promises, even through that thing that you're struggling with, maybe even in the early morning hours of tomorrow. Just remember, he keeps his promises and he loves and cares for you. He is the Lamb of God 
as we see in John chapter one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But has your sin been taken away? No, no, you personally. Has your sin been taken away? We read about the Passover, about the spreading of blood on the lintel and the doorposts so that the death angel would pass over the firstborn in those Israelite households. They were obedient and they did what God told them to do. We read about Jesus as the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's to say that he takes the sins of all the ethnicities of the world and within those ethnicities there are people who repent and who trust in God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. They trust in the righteousness that he gives them. And they come to him with no righteousness of their own because he's paid their debt. Have you surrendered to his lordship lordship by repenting of your own sin? Has he made you a new creature in Christ? And has he given you his righteousness, much like he gave the Passover lamb to those in Egypt so long ago? Father, we give you thanks for this morning. What a tremendous text that ought to have had several more days to go through this, to nail it all. But Lord, you've given us this text to remind us that you love your people, that you keep your promises, that your enemy will never usurp control from your hand. In fact, you will show your enemy that you're in control, even if it has to be 10 significant plagues to give them mercy, to say to them, you don't have to go through another one so that they would recognize that you're in control, that you keep your promises, the promises that you make, that you sent your son, your one and only son, that he would be the substitute, that sacrifice that we could never make on our own to pay for our own sin. You sent your son, your firstborn, so that we might have eternal life with you. And for that, we're grateful. Amen.